0: Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by author, a behavioral finance guru, and all around sharp investment mind, Michael Falk.
2: Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you, Daniel. It's great to be on the show with you. And thank you for considering me a deviant. Yes, you are uh, here
1: because you are a deviant. You know, you know how some podcasts do things like give their listeners names? I really batted around, you know, should I call my listeners deviants early on in the podcast? And then I I never quite pulled the trigger. So maybe we'll start it. Maybe it's a thing after today.
2: Well, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if we can call ourselves standard deviants, but we can just stick with the shorter version of deviant. What the hell? There you go. Well, welcome, deviants, to my conversation with Michael Falk.
1: So, Michael... Uh, your firm, Focus Consulting Group. Uh, one of the things that that you do there is help solve talent problems for the financial services industry. Now, this is uh, actually where I started my career. My first job after uh, finishing my PhD was was working for a a regional bank doing pre employment assessments of talent, uh, and I loved it. Like I thought it was really interesting work. I thought it was fascinating to do deep dives on. Uh, successful people's personalities and, the, and their person-job fit and person-organization fit. Talk me through the personality of an ideal hire for, for say, an asset management position. What does that look like to you?
2: Oh, well, that's actually a lot easier of a question to answer. Uh, well, it is still a very good question. Uh, number one, they have to be immensely curious, Curiosity, to me, is a superpower that is not spoken about enough. Number two, they have to have some level of EQ, ability to work well with others. And the irony here is I was very repetitive in that answer. You actually only need curiosity because, Daniel, if you are naturally and consistently curious... You cannot get offended by someone else because the worst thing that could happen is you say, "Huh? I wonder why they said that to me." And if you're observing because you're curious, their reaction to something you said, maybe you have a chance to clarify your intention. So one of the things that I ran
1: into when when doing my assessments was that you would get a lot of these sort of lame rote answers. you know you'd you'd ask some some variant of you know, why?" why do you want this job or what makes you a good fit for this job? And inevitably people would say, oh, I'm just so passionate. You know, I'm just, I'm just so passionate about the, about the work. And, you know, in some cases it's like an, an actuarial job or something. And you're like, ah, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're passionate about death tables or, you know, and so I, w- I was sort of admittedly sort of skeptical. And so I started saying, well, well, wonderful, right. Passion leaves a, a, a trace. So yeah. what's the evidence of your passion? Like, right? Is it, are you writing about this? Are you speaking about it? Are you training the next generation of actuarial scientists or whatever? How do you measure things like emotional intelligence and curiosity that can seem kind of ethereal or or hard to get your arms around?
2: There are actually tests that exist to measure people's creativity, to measure people's openness. When you think about creativity and openness, We can start to approach whether or not we want to use those as surrogates for measuring curiosity. But another way, Daniel, is why? Let's pretend we're all two years old. Well, I'm passionate about actuarial science. Why? Then they answer. Then you get to ask why again. Then you may actually get to a third. Why you think that? Or why did you say that? If they are trying to BS their way through the interview, you will know that within the first or second why, almost certainly. But I like what you said very much is, where are the little fingerprints of evidence of other things that you've done? And with younger people, if they're more junior hires, Daniel, that's a, that's a big ask, whether they have that kind of evidence to present. So I like using the whys and it becomes a little bit more of a behavioral, quote unquote, interview.
1: Perfect. So one of the things that, that made me laugh and apologies to the, to the salespeople uh, listening to this, because we are all really selling something. So let's be honest, we are, we are all salespeople. But one of the things that we found in our consulting work uh, is that intelligence was highly predictive of success in, in almost every role. With the exception to that being, uh, being sales, we found that like very high intelligence was actually negatively predictive of success in sales, uh, whereas general intelligence was, was very predictive of, of success in almost every other role we looked at. In your career, have you found anything sort of surprising or counterintuitive like this as you've tried to fill talent gaps in, in the financial services industry?
2: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Daniel, what you discovered was specialization. Sales is more of a, while it is a very specific type of skill, it's generalized based upon different audiences, whereas all the other jobs are more specialist jobs in the organization. So that makes sense to me. Uh, What we found is a couple of things IQ gets you in the door, EQ gets you to a higher floor. That if you don't have the interpersonal skills, Rising up in an organization is a lot harder. So that's the one thing that you know. So many of these hyper-educated, really intelligent, uh, younger people coming into the workforce—they think it's all about intelligence, and it that only gets you into the company. If you want to move up inside of the company, you're going to need more than that. You're going to need the interpersonal skills. One
1: of the, so I I began this, this job doing the
2: pre-employment assessments. I would
1: have been what, like 27, I guess, when I, when I started this job. And so I found myself in the position of, you know, sitting across the table and, and indeed being a gatekeeper for, for jobs, for people, you know, far, far more successful, far older than me. And one of the things that it really did was it, it, it actually really encouraged me and emboldened me to think that I could do great things with the right level of EQ because we would always explicitly measure general intelligence IQ and then we would measure personality and, and EQ across a number of facets. And very consistently, I found that people with sort of mediocre intellects had risen very far in an organization on the strength of their character and their personality. And their charm and their ability to to be interpersonally gifted. So I've uh, my my experience certainly certainly bears out your research and and what you've seen, um, Michael. Another thing that your firm helps with is conflict resolution. Now the research around decision making and diversity and conflict is really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. So I've seen research that suggests that psychologically diverse teams take longer to make decisions that they have more conflict, they fight more, but that they also make better decisions and as an organization tend to make more money. So is there an appropriate amount of conflict? Do we actually want some degree of conflict? And how do we best walk that line of having adequate conflict to fully vet and consider all options, but not such excessive conflict that it spills over into ugliness?
2: Oh, Daniel, you just walked into one of my biggest pet peeves in the world today. So we need more diversity in the financial services industry. We want more diversity in the financial services industry. But in the words of Jack Nicholson, can we handle more diversity in the financial services industry? The answer is until or unless teams understand teams, not individuals now, the importance of psychological safety, and I'm happy to go deeper on that, with each of your team members, until they understand each of their colleagues' personality, motivational profiles, they will struggle with diversity and the potential decision-making bonuses they can gain from diversity will be lost. However, If they can learn what psychological safety is, if they support and back it, and they take time to learn about their own personality motivations as well as their colleagues, I can tell you, Daniel, it's not about conflict. Now, it's about just appreciating different perspectives and points of view. And language is really important here. Can you imagine a teammate of yours saying, Well, Michael, you're wrong. Ouch, maybe. Oh, Michael, I disagree. Well, there's an end of a dialogue. Michael, I see it differently. Can you tell me why you think that? So we can teach, and Focus does this. We teach language so that it's not about generating conflict, it's about generating deeper, differentiated conversations. So so you
1: offered and, and I want to take you up on your offer to define and sort of flesh out this concept of psychological safety and how we get it in our organization.
2: This is something I came across a few years back when Google completed their study called Project Aristotle. Google who has all the data, all of our data, that's, you know, not worry about privacy right now. They wanted to find out is there something Is there a secret ingredient that makes one team that much more effective, this is an important word, effective, than another team? And after doing all of their number crunching and research, they determined there was a single differentiated factor. They called it psychological safety. Ding, 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 ding. Then they won the prize because Amy Edmondson from Harvard University published on this topic several years before. Well, the good news is they then combined. They joined forces to talk about psychological safety on a team is when each and every team member is essentially comfortable in their own skin. Let me explain what I mean by that. They are comfortable taking risks. They're comfortable being wrong. They're comfortable asking questions. They're comfortable disagreeing. When they can be themselves on the team and the team appreciates them for who they are, Then we have psychological safety. Focus consulting sometimes refers to this as our litmus test for the quality of the team's culture. So one
1: thing that I have seen repeatedly in organizations is I think that this understanding that a certain level of of conflict, if you will, I'm, I'm struggling to find a better word, a certain level of conflict is necessary to explore all alternatives and to make optimal decisions. So I think that is widely understood. So I think people give lip service to that and they may, they may ask for it. And ostensibly they want it, but I also know we have this deep human desire, you know, not to be taken on. We have a we have a desire not to be upstaged or to to be questioned. And so another thing that I've seen is people giving lip service to sort of productive conflict, but then finding workarounds, right? Like Mm -hmm. you and I have, if you and I are teammates, you question my thinking in a public forum, perhaps however appropriately, I can't say that I don't like that you did that because I know that we're supposed to be doing that. So instead, I sort of work backwards for my distaste for that interaction and find other reasons to, you know, to, to fire you or to relegate you to a yeah, corner yeah. of an organization. How do we get beyond just paying lip service to this to get to the point where we can really have these productive
2: conversations? I have two different techniques. How's that for crispness? Number one, have a role. For these discussions on the team that rotates among every team member over a period of weeks or months. So everybody gets to put on this piece of clothing, so to say. And this is classically known as devil's advocacy. And people classically know devil's advocacy as just taking the opposite side for whatever is proposed. There is another lesser known aspect of devil's advocacy which is your role is to make sure to expand the dialogue. So it may not be a disagreement. It may be a what else, a what if exploration. So that's one. Create a role for each of these discussions where a member on the team is assigned the devil's advocate role. their instructor for how to do this. And that role will rotate among all team members. Now it depersonalizes because everybody in the room knows this is their job. That's one way to do it. It happens to be quite effective. People just have to learn how to do devil's advocacy well as a skill. And that's a language topic, most generally. The other method, which we use at Focus Consulting quite a bit, when someone states a, a thesis, a belief, a perspective. Well, let's take it to a vote. You provide all the background information behind it. You're making this recommendation. Before there's any discussion, put the recommendation to a vote and the vote is, let's say it's a Likert schedule, strongly agree to strongly disagree, something of that sort. We use technology to do the real-time polling. So we put the recommendation up and then we have everybody on the team vote strongly agree to strongly disagree. Daniel, there's never complete alignment. Never. So once there's not complete alignment, now we open it up to the room for discussion. The votes are anonymous. We don't know who said what. So now the room begins to ask questions and explore dialogue on the recommendation because not everybody agrees that we should buy or sell this security. So it's, it's really powerful. I like how you depersonalize
1: it, right? It's It's not that Michael or Daniel are, are argumentative or or being a pain, it's just that this is the hat that they're wearing today. So I, lo- I love how that depersonalizes it. And I think many people are unaware of the, the power dynamics and the power differentials that exist in any organization. And so an anonymous vote, which is again, sort of depersonalized, is such a powerful way. Whereas if we're all sitting around the table and, and you know, with with our with our masks off, as as it were, and someone says, hey, well, you know, what do you think? It, it tends to be uh, yes, boss, <laughs> you know, sort of sort of dynamic. So two simple, concise, powerful ways to get at the real, uh, real intellectual horsepower of a team and, and the real thoughts. So last question in in this vein, you also consult around decision-making processes for for asset managers. Yeah. I think you've spoken to this, uh touched on it briefly today, but what do you find to be the most common uh, behavioral or decision-making traps, and how do you counsel folks to to begin to overcome them?
2: Well, I'm gonna, I want to I want to appreciate the question for what it is. I want to avoid the term behavioral traps for just a, a simple convenience. When I think of investment teams, they do let's call it six or seven things generally, right? They research an idea, they maybe purchase an idea, they maybe size it within the portfolio, they maybe sell it at some point, all right? and then they maybe learn from it. I can go on and on, but these are general things that all teams do, regardless of asset class. I want to shift your behavioral trap aspect to saying within these various things, where are they the worst offenders? Where do they lose the most potential alpha? And that's simple, selling. Selling is the hardest thing to do in the investment management business. And why? Because when we go back into the behavioral bias part of the world, most of the traps, if, if we can comparatively count them, seem to live within the sell discipline, right? We can, we can start with something such as loss aversion. We can move into regret bias. We can lose. We can talk about status quo bias. We can talk about overconfidence. We can talk about the endowment bias. Daniel, for interest of your listeners' time, I'm going to stop. The point is, selling is where most of the traps loom the largest. So I have constructed, architected uh, new sell disciplines for, I want to say, close to 100% of all the investment teams that have ever retained me for work. And it is a behavioral designed cell discipline. And I don't want to be too overly glorious about it. There is a constructive pre-agreed upon trigger, then what is required or not required from that trigger being breached. And then what follows from there. We have to have a cell discipline for stocks that are making us anxious and angry, and we have to have a sell discipline for stocks that are making us feel like we're 10 feet tall, the winners. You need two sell disciplines, folks, and teams are finally waking up to, we need help here.
1: So, so having now spent you know, half an hour just discussing these things, I have a bit of an impertinent question, which is, why do any of it? Why not defer to some quant strategy? Why not defer to some automation process or just something that, that likewise uh, seeks to subvert the worst of human decision-making? Why do the work, all the interpersonal work, all the emotional intelligence work, is there really something magical about the human touch that is additive to the investment decision-making process? Or can we simply automate these things away?
2: Uh, oh, what a wonderful topic. Oh, we cannot automate them away. Let me start there. Can we automate parts of some of them? The answer is absolutely yes. We should automate that which can be automated easily. We should not automate anything else. And, and Daniel, I want to quote Pablo Picasso in this vein. Computers are useless. They don't know how to ask questions. Now, there's a chance I didn't get that verbatim, but I know I got it pretty darn close. So what do I mean by this? Let's say we develop a beautiful quant model. Well, all we're doing is hard coding the potential biases that exist when we've created the quant model in the first place, because the model is based upon some beliefs for investment markets. So we're not getting away... All we're doing is we're going to make sure the portfolio is consistently biased, not that it's going to be unbiased. That's number one. Number two, sometimes markets evolve and change. A quant model is going to have a really hard time picking that up. Number three, when and if you should ever change your quant model will then induce potentially or bring into focus a new or different bias because of the alteration. So, Daniel, what I'm saying to you is, in theory, what you stated is beautiful. In practice, it doesn't work well. So, you know, going, going to your second point, that
1: markets do change and, and quant models tend to be static and do not change, you'll get no no disagreement from me there. Both of those things are are true. But we also know that humans are pattern-seeking creatures and that we can tend to see faces in clouds, as it were, and we can tend to see patterns in markets that don't exist. Yeah. So, so while quant strategies are inflexible and may not keep up with the times, uh, human strategies might see change around every corner where, where none exists. So how, how do we build this sort of centaur model, right, that, that takes the best of quant and, and analysis and data and takes the best of, of human decision making and, and merges them together?
2: We make sure that the quant piece is about information, information, information. So, we're trying to unbias the information. Then we're using people for what people are good at, asking questions and being creative. What we want to do is with the people, we want to make sure this is where a diverse team going full circle to the beginning of our dialogue, Daniel. A diverse team is critical. A diverse team, not everybody's going to see the same face in that cloud. Number one. Number two, the way you structure the decision making process within the team. What are the decision rules? How is the voting done? How is the information presented? That can work wonders. And then, of course, we can use simple other quantitative techniques just to make sure that we do things right. Let me give you the silliest and simplest of all, Daniel. Equal weight, the securities in the portfolio. So for all those stocks or bonds or everything under the sun that you think has merit and you think you should own them in your portfolio, since you don't know what the future is for any of them, because the future hasn't happened yet, regardless of your level of confidence, if it has merit to be in your portfolio, gather up all of those little lottery tickets and equally weight them. Now we used a basic type of quant technique, quant-like technique to de-bias decision making which is we're going to overweight this one and we're going to underweight that one which generally when it's measured turns out to be suboptimal so it's interesting i i think these
1: chess the, the chess comparisons can get overused but we we know we know that the best combination of man and machine when it comes to chess is is neither the man or, nor the machine in isolation but but the, the man working with the machine the, yes. the man or the woman working with the machine, right? And so I like this, this idea of using computers for what they're good for and using human uh, ingenuity for creativity and asking questions. Even someone with a profound quant bias like myself uh, can can get behind that. Now, Michael, I got to tell you, I, I almost wanted to cancel uh, our conversation today because my St. Louis Cardinals lost uh, lost the game and the series last night to the hated Chicago Cubs in the most despicable and inglorious fashion, going 0 for 10 in the first nine innings with, with runners in scoring position. But nevertheless, I'm I'm a big person. Here we are today, cats and dogs uh, talking uh, in, in a friendly way. Let's
2: talk about baseball. Well, hold on, Daniel, before we push past that, <laughs> no, I, I, no, 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 no. I'm not. There's going to be no rubbing going on here. No rubbing. But your Cardinals are now coming to Chicago to play my other baseball team. I've got two baseball teams. They're coming oh, to town to play the White, the White Sox. Sox. Yeah. And so maybe we should talk again in a couple of days. I don't know. Well, I've looked. I've looked at the pitching
1: matchups for the next three days, and I can tell you we don't stack up favorably. So this will be our last conversation, I think. <laughs> and I don't. And I don't. Oh, make- well, that's a bit disappointing, Daniel. I'm joking. I'm joking, but I'm not joking about the desire to talk about baseball metaphors and in investing. So you, uh, you were a pitcher for a, a
2: long, long, long time. Tell, tell us about your. Tell us about your pitching career. It ended when I was 31 years old. It started when I was 13 years old. How's that for a set of bookends? Just trade the numbers. Uh, I didn't get the coaching that I needed when I was in my teens. As a result, my talent matured late, but I kept playing because I loved the game. I was still competitive. I wouldn't have traded the experience for anything. It taught me so much about myself. It taught me so much about the value of teamwork, it taught me how to separate yourself from what is going on in the rest of the world. You know, we can say it's a form of mindfulness at its core. Daniel, no matter what was going well or less than well in my life, when I stepped onto the baseball field, it was just baseball. Everything else disappeared. And to me, it wasn't just my first love. It was, it was an escape. It was a respite. It was a hobby. It was It was everything to me. And it taught me a lot. The problem, Daniel, is it didn't teach me enough while I was still playing. It taught me a lot when I looked back on it after I was done playing. And isn't that interesting?
1: That is interesting. I think that's true of life so many times. A lot of times we're not able to make sense of whatever it is we're going through while we're in the midst of it, it's it's only as we look back and reflect. And I think that that far too often, you know, many of us, myself included, don't, don't take the opportunity to look back and reflect. So you've teed me up beautifully here um, because we're going to give you a chance to make history here today on standard deviations. There's lots of great baseball metaphors in investing about hitting, Right. Warren Buffett talks about waiting and not swinging until you get your fat pitch. Yeah. Uh, many noted investors have likened their sort of circle of competence uh, construct to Ted Williams' famous Science of Hitting book. Uh, I am as yet unaware of any pithy pitching wisdom with respect to investing. So here is your chance. How is investing like pitching?
2: That's a tricky little question, Daniel. Uh, Tricky, tricky. You know, when I think of pitching, best pitching pitches from the inside out. And what I mean by that is get ahead, then you go for your out pitches. And when I think about that vis a vis investing, get ahead, then go for your out pitches. And, you know, that's almost a little bit like Buffett's maxim number one, don't lose clients' money. Number two, don't forget rule number one. I think. Daniel, I don't know if I have something pithy for you right off the bat, but here's what I know. Doing good research, making a good purchase, sizing it correctly, not getting too fancy with it, trading around it, owning it. There's something within there that fits with me for do your work well follow the rigors of your off days to prepare yourself to pitch when your time is up on the bump. So Daniel, the best I could say is the regimen, the discipline, the work that nobody sees until you take the bump in the middle of the field is everything that matters. You know, that's
1: that's so good. They talked in the
2: broadcast light last night about the
1: importance of getting that first strike as a pitcher. And they said, if I'm, if I'm quoting this correctly, I think I am that the, this year hitters batting average has dropped 150, uh, 150 points when, when they have a first strike on them. So I think you've likened it nicely, get those fundamentals, right? Do that fundamental research, size it correctly, value it correctly. And then worry about, you know, your your knee buckling curveball or whatever, the sort of the, the icing on top. But get the basics right. Get that first strike uh, and, and then go from there.
2: We'll work. yeah. And, and what workshop. people don't see, Daniel, what people don't see, you know, starting pitcher goes every five days. Right. Mm-hmm. What people don't see is those four days in between. Pitchers have specific protocols and regimens for each of those four days in preparation for the next time they're going to take them out. All of this work that underlies that moment that people see on the TV, it's about doing the work.
1: Yeah. Another, another great lesson. It's, it's about a lot more than the buying and selling. It's the educating, the disciplining, the temperament that, you know, frankly, as I've written about in some of my books, um, you know, even things like diet and exercise and sleep and nutrition and and self-care are are fundamental to making good investment decisions. Um, There's a lot of work that happens in between starts. So Michael, we're going to workshop those two ideas. We're going to put something pithy up there and we're going to have you on brainyquote.com in no time. Awesome. (laughs) <laughs> so finally, Michael, I wanted to talk about uh, about your. You were you were somewhat recently diagnosed with ALS, and when when you and I were talking about this, I mean, honestly, I'm I'm like, how do we structure this? I mean, it's it's this huge life changing diagnosis. Do we do we spend the whole podcast talking about it? Uh, do we not talk about it at all and just focus on your expertise? Do we do a mix and and you were very gracious to you know to sort of to to give me uh, give me some leeway there to, to discuss it or not discuss it as I wished. But I just wanted to start off by acknowledging that and, and asking how you're doing generally.
2: Well, you're hearing how I'm doing. ALS for those who don't know what this is, it is a degenerative disease that essentially. Will turn all of your muscles into jello, not really jello. It causes all of your muscles to atrophy to the point of where they're they're useless. Uh, there is no cure. there are only experimental treatments. Uh, life expectancy is on average three to five years from the onset of symptoms. Uh, my symptoms began just over two years ago. So if I am average, I've got about two years to go. Don't know. There's no predictability. To date, 100% of the impact of ALS on me has been below my neck. I am in a wheelchair full time. I can't use my legs. I can't use my arms. However, I can still chew. I can still swallow. And you're hearing I can still speak clearly. My mind is unaffected. So, Daniel, I have become the epiphany, the pinnacle of a talking head because I can't do anything else. That's how I'm doing. And I still get a chance to spend my days talking with incredible people like you. I'm still writing, right? No more books, but I'm writing a lot more articles these days. Uh, Dictation, by the way, can work really well. And I love what I'm doing, so I'm going to keep doing it for as long as I'm able.
1: Yes. Well, thank you for that. You are still uh, I- incredibly sharp from the, from the neck up, and we're all the, the beneficiary of, of that wit and wisdom. You know, uh, almost now, three years ago, we lost my, my sister-in-law to, to cancer at the, at the age of 32, Ooh. and I'll never, I'll, I'll never forget the moment when, when my wife came into my office, I was, I was downstairs, I was having a bad day. I was frustrated about who knows what triviality at that moment. And and my wife comes through the, you know, the door of my office. And immediately I could just tell from, from her face and her body language. I knew that my, my sister-in-law's cancer had returned. She, she fought it for six years. And in that moment, Every dumb little detail that I had been worried about that day, I I mean, as a testament to that, I have no idea what I was worried about that day. At that moment, Mm -hmm. everything fell away. And I became laser focused on what mattered. And it was not my Excel spreadsheet that I was, you know, wringing my hands about moments earlier. Uh, what has come into focus for you since your diagnosis? What matters to you today that didn't before, and what mattered before that that no
2: longer does? I will argue that I have greater clarity today and allocation of time towards things more directly aligned with my purpose than before. However, I was pretty aligned this way. And have been for probably about five years already. The additional clarity, Daniel, the simplest way I can joke with people about this is I more readily delete emails that come into my email box than keep them to think about them or read them. Hmm. Uh, And I'm getting some perverse level of happiness and pleasure out of deleting more emails.
1: Well, uh, I think. I think we could all do with with less email. And you know, one of the things that I've tried to do personally, um, a young man that I went to church with growing up, he's quite a bit younger than me, t- like ten years younger than me, but he um, slipped and fell off a mountain hiking and, and passed away just a few days ago. And when when things like that come into to my life, and I have these moments of sort of existential clarity. It helps me to journal or to set things in place because I have these flashes of perspective, right? These flashes of perspective. When you hear about you know, someone you know or someone you cared for losing their life, especially at a long, young age, you have a moment of perspective where you go, you know, some of the things that I'm focused on or some of the things that I'm worried about are not that important. So for me, at least, it sounds like you were dialed in as, you know, as recently as, as five years ago. But for me, I think the, the inconsequential stuff can get in the way. And so I think, I, I hope that listeners will, you know, listen to your story and your perspective and just focus on their purpose and, you know, do what you set in place five years ago. And it's awesome to hear that you've been on this path for so long. We don't all get... 80 years, right? And tomorrow isn't promised for, for me or for, for you or for anyone listening to this program. And so I think it's a, a call to, to make sure you're walking that, that purposeful path.
2: Yeah. And let me share with you what some people, I, I hope they take this for what it's intended to be. Why don't we think about things a little bit differently? Let me give you an example. I have ALS. I know how I'm going to die. I also know I have no pain. I'm not going to have any pain. There's a couple of gifts of ALS. Ha ha. Uh, I know time frame, roughly. I have certainty around that. The human mind, Daniel, we can talk about this briefly if we wish. Human mind loves certainty. It doesn't like uncertainty. Cancer, painful. Chemotherapy, painful, disgusting. Will I recover? Won't I recover? I would argue, Daniel, that there are aspects of ALS that as horrible as it is, there may be some reasons to say there are worse ways to die. I also have the heads up. So I've got time. To do any planning or preparations that maybe had not yet been completed for the benefit of my family. And that is, you wanna talk about peace of mind when you can care for those things because you have time to do so. You don't slip and fall on a mountain, you don't get into a car accident. Daniel, I'm not gonna tell you because it's not possible to say I'm happy about this diagnosis, but. I don't have to lament it. I can make peace with it and understand that, you know, there are a lot worse ways to go.
1: Well, your, your attitude and your perspective is incredible. And, and your point is well taken about the opportunity that you have to set things in place, um, sort of having, having a greater knowledge of, of your timeline and greater certainty about what the future holds for you allows you to treat every interaction with your family as, as though it matters and to, to focus on only the work that matters and to delete the emails that don't. And I know that it's impossible for all of us to live with that kind of clarity and focus all the time. But I think if we could all take a, a directional, a, a step in the direction of, of Michael Falk, I think we'd be much better off. So, Michael, if if people have been moved by your story and, and they want to help in the, the fight against ALS with their time or their money, how have you found is, is best to support that cause?
2: There are two organizations that when people ask me, I say, here are organizations that maybe you, you want to give to if you have the ability and the interest. One is I amals.org. And the other one is Les Turner. Uh, Les Turner it provides help to people with ALS. And, and Daniel, I can get that information to you. But mostly what I'm asking for people to do is to maybe help me with my purpose, to maybe be my voice when I no longer have one. Because I will eventually lose my voice or have an inability to speak clearly if I don't lose it. I have written two books that are 100% aligned with my purpose. And then just uh, last week, I had a research brief that I co authored published entitled Capitalism for Everyone uh, by the CFA Institute Research Foundation. These writings, My writing is directly aligned with my purpose. Please search out my papers, read my books, get my books, steal the ideas, give them to people, help people, become a voice for dialogue, not argument, become a voice for good, being inclusive, not exclusive. My first book published in 2016 is available on Amazon. The Kindle, Daniel, you can download for free. My second book published in 2019, a couple of months after my diagnosis, Kindle download $10. All the proceeds of that book are going to one of the two charities I mentioned to you. I make no profits off of my books. Those books are about policy, About entitlement reform, about rethinking things such as AI stealing jobs, such as universal basic income, such as immigration or healthcare policy. Daniel, on this entire call, I have not shared my purpose yet in terms of the language. If it's okay, I'd like to share that now. Please. To positively impact the financial lives of as many people as possible. I learned it when I was 22 years old. My books and my writings over the last five years, six years, are a direct extension of my purpose. I want to help as many people as I can. That's why I said, read my stuff, steal the ideas. I'm not looking for attribution. I'm looking to help people. Well, it's an
1: incredible it's an incredible gift that that you've given all of our listeners. Um, you know, I I periodically pound the table when I have uh, guests on who have written uh, books that I believe in, and I've I've read one of your books and many of your papers, uh, and I can pound the table about this one and say it's an excellent book. Uh, it's a real unique book, a unique contribution to the literature. Uh, and if if that's not enough for you, uh, it's either free or it supports a great cause. So uh, I would just challenge anyone listening to this uh, to help Michael uh, fulfill that mission and to have his voice uh, carry on for, for generations to come. So, Michael. Uh, thank you so much for your time, your insight, uh, and your candor and your heart, most of all, and your, your purpose. Uh, it's been wonderful to have you on the show.
2: Thank you. And it has been my privilege to be on your show, Daniel, and be one of your deviants.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.